Can I encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8? And we're going to read the last part of that chapter. It's page 1486 in the church Bibles. There's a few left on the welcome table at the back. Feel free to go grab one. As I've been teaching through this gospel, I had an expectation of arriving at this passage and an excitement about having the opportunity to preach these verses. They mark a moment of crescendo in the teaching of Jesus and the call. Uh, it kind of is a line that Jesus draws in the sand here to the disciples and the crowds. And then the later chapters begin to move swiftly towards the cross, towards his execution and his resurrection. And uh, so I had a sense of anticipation in coming to these verses, but in actually preparing for it, it's like, how do you find the words to articulate the weightiness of what Jesus is saying here? And so we, we need the Holy Spirit to help us to see and feel the weight of the things that Jesus is saying to us as he speaks to, speaks to us directly uh, in his call to discipleship. And so I want to read to you these last verses of Mark chapter 8 from verse 34. It says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus has been building to this moment for many who've been around him in his ministry to this point. And he's been talking to people through different ideas. He's saying some of you are deaf, but there are those of you who can hear understand and hear the voice of God speaking through me. There are those of you who are blind and can't see, but some of you can see who I am. And so he's speaking to those who can hear, who can see, and he's putting before them this kind of an ultimatum, this kind of a, this summons, this call, this demand that is signal, that is vital, that is heavy. And This is how we need to hear him. Now, I think we have to underline in our day the weightiness of the things Jesus is saying for the simple reason that a lot of people can view the commitment to follow Jesus and the commitment to be a Christian as a lighthearted and easy thing in many levels because it's not uncommon to meet people who are attracted to aspects of Christianity and who want to quickly identify with this because there's so much that's appealing about it even if I recognize there are aspects that are not but you think about what is appealing there's the there's the opportunity to be part of community in a world that is fragmented and lonely it's been interesting to me to watch the rise and now the decline of the Sunday assembly which is the atheist churches that started in London and became worldwide and then has quickly just as quickly begun to fizzle out but one of the great um Reasons why that came together was because of this desire for community. 
And the church offers that, so people are drawn to that. You think about how people also are drawn to the idea of being part of a cause. And I think this one thing that can be said of this younger generation that's coming through is that there is a desire to be part of a cause that's bigger than us. You see greater protests and greater um, desire to have a voice spoken on various issues like climate change. And some of that is not so much about the issue as as much as it is about the desire to be part of something. And Christianity can offer you that. You think about how people even in our day and age have a desire to, 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 to fall in line with a call to holiness, if I can put it like that. And one of the ways in which I see that in our culture is around the new food laws, which have begun to crop up. Ways of demarcating those who are holy from those who are not holy based on the things you eat or do not eat. It's interesting. So all these things that Christianity historically has offered are things that resonate with our hearts at a deep level and which actually draw people back to the Christian faith. And yet, this is my point. The call of Jesus is much harder than you think. Despite all the appealing aspects of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of his church, the the call of Jesus is harder than you think. And one of the reasons for that is that Jesus is not, at, is not offering you a mere improvement or an add-on to your life. When I was a young teen in the 1990s, um, I used to play a game called Gran Turismo on the PlayStation, where you'd start by purchasing a, a bargain basement bottom-level vehicle, It's like the equivalent of a Toyota Prius or a reasonably priced car. And you would begin to win races and and earn cash to improve the thing. And you'd add a new exhaust pipe. You might replace the engine. You add some nitro injection. It was like Fast and the Furious for teenagers on their PlayStations. And eventually this thing would improve. But at some point you'd reach, you'd max out. The car would, would be so... So uh, it was, it's just rubbish. You had to then sell it and buy a new thing if you won enough races. And one of the things that, that strikes me about what Jesus is saying here is that that idea that you can basically be the same you and just add some small improvements like involvement in the community or engagement with the cause or something like this to gradually improve your life is a completely wrong way of understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's a completely misguided uh, picture. Partly because it underestimates just how flawed you are. And the very fundamental work that God has to do in your life when you follow him. And also because it underestimates how great Christ is. It turns him into a mechanic instead of the Lord of the universe, doesn't it? And so when we're coming to a passage like this, you know, I, I cannot stress enough how the model that you may have seen or grown up in or been familiar with of what it means to be a Christian is, is very likely an inadequate model. I grew up in a context around people who were claiming to be followers of Christ. And yet so often there are, there's a desire to put a limiter on that, isn't there? You think about, we want, to, we want to love Jesus, but not too much. We dare not be seen to be too passionate about this. Or you think about how people feel, yeah, a commitment to the cause. I, I give to my local church. But I've seen parents, I've known parents who when their children have grown up and said, I want to be, I, want, I feel the call of God to go on the mission field. The parents get angry. You think, well, what kind of commitment was that to the Lord if the most precious thing, your child, you cannot give to him? 
You can see how there's this kind of in-out separation that so has marked Western Christianity and has been a very dangerous infection, I think, and a misguided understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Now, this passage destroys that way of thinking. It tells you, if you're not a Christian, exactly what Christ is calling you to. But Jesus isn't only speaking to people who are not Christians here, as it were. He, he actually says at the start, he says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. You may consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus. Many of us are. But the call that Jesus lays down in front of you in this, these words is as urgent today as it was the day you made a profession of faith. And I want to show you what Jesus is provoking you to think about from three different angles. Here's the first. Jesus wants you to think about the nature of the call itself. What it means to be a disciple of Christ. Now, we need to get into this by asking the question, why is it hard to follow Jesus? Why am I saying it's hard? There are lots of reasons we could speak about here, which I think are true, but are not the fundamental reason. I think about the fact that there's embarrassment associated with with what what it means to be called a Christian, which was true then as it's true now. You remember how Peter denies Jesus and the shame associated with that. And that's true. That's one reason why people hesitate, but it's not the fundamental reason. There's a problem of the fact that Jesus calls you to put your sin behind you, to put it to death. And certainly that's a very, very vital reason why you have to consider and keep considering what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But it's not the fundamental challenge of being a follower of Christ. There's the fact that you often are called to give up on certain dreams in life, selfish dreams, selfish ambitions. It's vital, but it's not the fundamental thing. If you were to ask me, what is the fundamental reason why it is hard to follow Jesus, the fundamental challenge, I put it like this, that it comes down to a question of lordship in your life. In other words, who, who is on the throne of your heart? Whether it is you or it is him. That's the fundamental confrontation. That is the basic challenge that Jesus is putting before us here. And it becomes clear in this, these words that he says when he says that if anyone would come after me in verse 34, let him do three things. Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow me. Think with me about what these phrases mean. When he says, first of all, let him deny himself. Jesus is not speaking here about those daily small acts of, of self-denial which you engage in when you say, I'm, I'm keeping away from chocolate these days. I'm just denying myself. Or I'm not watching box sets. You know, I feel like I need to establish new habits. It's just an act of self-denial. And of course, these things aren't unimportant. Of course, when you want to be more disciplined and all the rest of it. But this is not what Jesus is talking about here. Whenever he, this word deny is used in the New Testament, it has to do with the basic allegiance of your heart, whether you confess or deny someone. It's the same word that's used of Peter. When Jesus says to him, before the crow, the rooster crows tonight, you'll deny me three times. You'll deny me. It means that you will deny your fundamental allegiance to following me. So when Jesus says, let him deny himself, he's not talking about those daily small acts of self-discipline, And being a self-controlled person. 
He's actually talking about something much deeper than that. He's talking about this basic confrontation about who your life is surrendered to, whether you're following your own will or following the will of Christ. And then take the second phrase he uses. He says, deny himself and take up his cross. Again, I think because of this verse, this language has seeped into our consciousness and people use it in a way that actually is a slightly downgraded version of what Jesus meant here. We talk about our daily hardships, don't we, as taking, on, taking up our cross. You think, you know, you struggle with irritable bowel syndrome. You say, it's just the cross I have to bear. Or you have a difficult mother-in-law. It's just the cross I have to bear. There are all kinds of ways we use this phrase in our day-to-day life that speaks of um, just, just little, little bits of grit in your, in your daily experience and suffering in your daily experience of life, which are, we call the cross I have to bear. But actually, when Jesus is saying here, takes up his cross, You have to remember that this was a symbol. Jesus hadn't been crucified yet, but everyone knew exactly what he meant. It was a symbol in the ancient imagination of the fate of people who had been sentenced to death by the most gruesome and painful execution the Romans could devise. And what he meant was that to take up your cross is to recognize that you are a person who at a most fundamental level has wronged the emperor. Not the Caesar, but the emperor of the universe. And he's talking here about the acceptance of a sentence of death for self. You've got to deny self, but more than that, you have to recognize that yourself must die. And then he adds this third expression. He says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, let him follow me. This is the positive. Because this is not all about negation. It's not all about what you have to get rid of. As much as that call is stark and challenging. Jesus was inviting people into something positive when he laid down this call to be a disciple of Christ. I think in a sense, the way you can think of it is like, you remember when you were a kid, maybe you played with those little iron filings which would respond to the presence of a magnet. And they were so sensitive. They would dance when a magnet was waved near them or over them. And I think what Jesus is talking about here when he says, let him follow me, is about Christ getting into the deepest parts of your being and turning you towards him so that every part of you, every fiber of your desire, of your, lived, uh, of your day-to-day life is oriented towards him and his presence. And it's really, way, it's, it's really built upon this expression, follow me, which is, which is a Hebrew way of speaking that's actually from the oldest Parts of the scriptures from the very earliest pages of the Bible. Some of you will have read in the book of Genesis how very early on it it describes certain men who had a close and intimate and obedient relationship with God. And one of them is Enoch. It says that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And then in the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 6, it says about Noah that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In the New Testament, Paul says to the Christians, he says he exhorts them to keep in step with the Spirit and so not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
And what this is, is a picture, an image of what it means to, to experience moment by moment, daily obedience to the Lord. That every part of your being, like those iron filings, is responding to the reality of his presence in your life. It means something about the intimate relationship that you begin to enjoy with God. You pray, but you also hear. It's talking about that attentiveness. You know, when, when Jesus' disciples were following him, it was a very literal thing. They literally walked behind him on the roads and hung on his every word. And it's talking about a responsiveness to the Lord. And friends, what I'm hoping you begin to see is that when Jesus says, he he lays down this challenge in front of us. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. Let him follow me. It means that at the most basic part of your existence, there cannot be a conflict anymore. It means that it, in your deepest desires, Christ wants to conquer you. You can think of the image of how Jacob wrestled with God in the pages of the Old Testament in Genesis. Christ, as it were, has entered into a wrestling match with you, with yourself, with your soul. And he, he, he will not back down until you walk with a limp. Until self has been brutally battered and put to death, as it were. In order that you can actually then give your life to him completely. Can you begin to feel how this absolutely cuts against the spirit of the age? We live in a world of the championing of the individual, of my rights, of my desires, of my identity. And what Christ actually comes to do is to say, no, 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 you must die. If you want to follow me, you must die. And I want to ask you, friend. Is that been true of you? Is that true of you today? This is the challenge. Every day in the life of the Christian. Because no sooner have you brutally murdered self. And that it seems like a ghoul to rise from the grave. And try and take control again. Doesn't it? You know this conflict in your heart and in your life. And Christ says no. This is absolute. This is all of you. This is without reserving any part of you that doesn't belong to me. Has that happened in your life? Is it true of you today? It may be the case that the Holy Spirit is beginning to point out in your own heart the ways in which it isn't true. Those desires that actually you recognize have come from you and not from him. The ways in which you are obeying yourself and not obeying the Lord. Christ wants all of you. Now, I want to bring you to a second point here. 
Jesus doesn't want, only want you to think about the call itself. He also wants you then to think about the future as a motivation for this. How on earth does he expect you to make and to keep making this decision to be a follower of Christ, given how absolutely radical and difficult this call is? And I think part of the answer is, what well, looking forward, he actually wants you to think about the costs and the benefits and, and, and weigh those things up. Now, it terrifies us to follow Jesus in the way that he's describing here because we recognize that there is so much in our lives that has to be, has to be jettisoned. And there is an element of saying no to stuff which you want, which you desire. And I want to ask you the question, how do you choose Christ over everything? I think part of answering that question is understanding that to have anything, you have to let go of many things. Think about Jesus' words here. When he lays this out before the disciples, he says, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now, it's just a day-to-day reality of your lived experience that in order to attain anything in life, there are many things that you have to let go of. You think about how you choose to spend your time. Every time you make a decision about, I'm going to do this with my time, you're saying no to a million other options. If you've ever settled down into a long-term relationship and then decided you're going to marry a person, some of you here are married, some of you are contemplating it, you realize, don't you, that when you say yes to someone or when you invite someone to enter into that kind of a commitment, you're also saying no to a few billion options, aren't you? I mean, I know they're not really valid options, but at least in theory... You're saying no to many, many options. So in a sense, what Jesus is calling you to is nothing different from what you have to do on moment by moment, day to day, in a day to day way. Every decision you make, every embrace that you make in life is a letting go of many other things. You chose your job. You chose your career path, whatever it was. You said no to a million other options. But of course, when we're coming to this, this call, we have to appreciate the weightiness of what Christ and the importance of the decision that Christ is putting in front of us. There are higher stakes involved because it involves radical life change to follow Christ, doesn't it? And the continually coming back to radical shifts often at a very deep level. There are bigger consequences. Jesus uses the language here of life and death, of salvation and loss. Nothing could be more serious, in other words, than this. Nothing. It's longer term. So when Jesus is talking about saving or losing your life, he doesn't just mean, it's absolutely clear to me that he's talking about the eternal consequences of the call to follow him, isn't he? Why then do we find it difficult to do what we know in the clear light of day is the right thing to do? And the obvious answer is because we are so immersed in the distractions and the seductions of the day and the age in which we live, aren't we? One of the images that I found helpful over the years to understand this is that psychological test that happened a few decades ago with little four or five-year-olds, which they called, famously called the marshmallow test. You heard about it, right? Where they put these little children into a room and watched them through a one-way piece of glass and said to them as they left the room, 
Here's a marshmallow. If it's still there on your plate, when I come back, you're going to get a second one. But if it's not there, that's it. You're done. You've got one and that's it. And they watched these different children and how some of them sat there writhing in agony, uncomfortable, just watching this thing until, until they eventually managed to overcome their temptation. Others of them would just sort of sniff it, lick it, and eventually, of course, succumb to the desire. And actually what they charted with, the, with these children, apparently, is that they could tell that the kids who said no became more successful in later life because they had this ability to exercise what they call deferred gratification. If I can put off pleasure till later by doing the uncomfortable thing now, then I can make more of a success of my life. And it struck me, and it seems obvious when we think about it, in a sense, the Christian life and what Jesus is calling you to, who, to, calling you to is deferred gratification on the grandest scale. Because he's saying, there's a big no you have to say now, now in order to say yes to what Christ is offering. And you may have forgotten that, friend. Christian, you may have forgotten this. You find yourself head down engaged with, you, you are focused on the marshmallow in front of you. And Christ is confronting you, isn't he? He's saying, no, 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 don't, don't you remember? You have to lose your life in order to gain it. Think about the future he wants for you and what he's offering. Ask yourself what really matters here. Think about the reality of death and the preciousness of your soul. I want to bring you to the last point. Jesus doesn't only confront you with thinking about the future. He also wants you to think about the past. Now, what I've not wanted to do, and I guess you've probably got this point by now, is in any way whitewash the challenge and the difficulty on a day-to-day basis of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not like it gets easier, friends. It's not like you enter into a moment where you've, you've got over the brow of the hill and it's all downhill from there. It seems to me that It seems to me that the call to be a disciple and the reason why Jesus had to remind his own disciples of this is because it does not get easier. That you must keep remembering. Jesus calls for everything. And that call is deep and sacrificial. But of course, and what he offers you, it seems to me, reading these verses, is largely future and unseen. You know, if someone came to you, I know one or two of you have have been entrepreneurs in your time and started businesses. And if someone came to you and said, listen, I've got this idea for a business. It's untested. No one's seen if it works or not. And you can get in from the ground floor. All you need to do is give me all of your money. And I promise you, I'm going to deliver on this. The great question that lay before the disciples on that day, remembering, of course, that Jesus was just a traveling preacher and they were to a penny at the time. Of course, he seemed a bit unique because of all the miracles he was doing and such. But even then, there was not much going for him. He had no great following. He had no military power. There was no proof that the things he was offering were true. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you can get in from the ground floor here. And the great question that would have racked their minds is, how can we possibly know that the promises he's making will come true? Now, what Jesus says 
you know, I, I actually don't think you can overestimate how significant this must have been for them to weigh, weigh in their hearts, which is why they vacillate. It's why they go back and forth. It's why they have moments of surrender and commitment to him and moments of doubt like Peter does and like Thomas does. You know, I, was, I, had, a friend who, I had a friend who got involved in a kind of a get-rich-quick scheme where he had to recruit a certain number of people to buy in and uh, that would make him wealthy, but they had to then recruit other people to buy into them. And basically, it's, it's a pyramid scheme, isn't it? And he kept trying to convince me, this is going to work. This is great. This is going to change my life. It could change yours too. You just need to get in and be one of my, one of my, uh, one of my people. And of course, what, I just kept looking at his life and thinking, look, it doesn't seem to be working for you. It's also deeply immoral. But um, I'm not so sure about this. You know, why would I give you um, such a great commitment given that there's no real track record proven that this could even work. And of course, maybe it looked like that to the disciples following Jesus and the crowds listening to his call. You have that on one side. And then on the other side, you, you know, transport yourself back to 1976 when two young upstarts, Steve Jobs and, 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 and Steve Wozniak, were working on a wooden uh, little computer, the Apple One, a little device and uh, you know people could have bought in at that point and one man did his name was Ronald Wayne but he got nervous a few matter of weeks later sold his 10% share for $800 which you know if you earned point owned point 0.1% of Apple when it started you'd now be rich beyond your wildest dreams and you just think when when a choice is like this when a man is making promises like this he's in front of you the great question is how can you possibly know and my friends, there is an answer here. Jesus offers a guarantee. He says to them in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So having put before them the gauntlet of the almost impossible call of what it means to follow Christ with everything that you are and put self to death. Jesus says, listen, this is how you'll know. This is how you'll know that it's worth it. For them, the promise that he put in front of them was still future, but within a few short years, just think about the things these men would see. There they are at this point, just a ragtag bunch of disciples traveling from village to village. But within a few short years, they would witness Jesus dead. They'd then see him alive from the dead. They'd see him ascend to heaven to be at the Father's right hand. They would see a small group of disciples, no, not much smaller than this group in this room, filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the church increased 30-fold overnight in size. And then, charting it, a little bit further down the road, they would see, as one person says in the book of Acts, that these men have turned the world upside down. Within a matter of 30 years, the world was being ups- turned upside down. When you chart it from the moment of Jesus saying these words to what happened in the Roman Empire. And then you trace that journey just a little bit further on. That's just what happened within their own lifetimes. The very things they saw. Now consider what happened in the following centuries. How an entire Empire, the most powerful empire arguably the world's ever seen, bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And how, looking back on this now, we can see 2,000 years of Christ's power. So that when he says these words, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. The obvious thing that I want you to understand here is that in many ways, you are a greater advantage today than they were on the day when they heard Jesus preaching this. Because all of this has happened. Most important of all, the cross happened. Christ died and he rose from the dead for you. And so friends, even if it feels like continually following Jesus or making the decision for the first time today is the hardest thing you you could ever do or are doing, Jesus isn't asking you to do it in a void. He's saying, look at what I'm doing and have done in the world. And he's inviting you continually to surrender your life to him because he is emphatically, without argument, the Lord of all things. Amen? And I want to ask you, will you choose him? But more than that, are you choosing him? Are you choosing him? It takes a moment of reflection, doesn't it? It takes a moment where you look at and examine your own heart and life. And ask yourself this question. Is he Lord? Is there some great conflict at the root of me? Where self is trying to get up out of the grave and assert dominance again. And Jesus is saying no. Christ wants you. and He wants to lavish his love on you and bless you. Give you more than you could imagine. But he does require that you die. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray. We are going to take these moments of praising and worshipping God to respond to him. It's partly going to be through the things we sing. But friend, there's nothing stopping you from having dealings with him right now. It may be the case that some of you think, the time has come. I want to become a Christian today. I hear the call. I understand what he's asking for, and I'm ready. And I encourage you to do it, to turn to Jesus and say, I want you to have my life. I want to die to myself, and I want you to have my life. But for many of you, it is a case of choosing him again, isn't it? You remember moments in your journey where you were enraptured with love for Christ maybe the love has diminished or you remember moments when you were walking in holiness maybe you feel that your life has become sullied dirtied in some way 
I'm inviting you now to have dealings with the Lord in the quiet place. We're going to remain seated and I will hand out the bread and the wine in a moment or two. And as I do so, I want to encourage you to remember that this is, you're coming to a Savior who did not demand more than he could give. When he asked you to die, he went before you as the one who died. It's not like he's demanding something of you that he wasn't willing to give to you first. That's the blessing of being on this side of the cross and knowing how much he is for us. Knowing how committed he is to us. Being able to chase doubt out of our minds about his goodness because how else could he show you how good he is? What else could he do that could exceed that? His willingness to die for you. So as you're seated, come to him again. It may be the case you just want to come to him and worship. Just say, thank you, Lord, that you got a hold of me all those years ago. I'm still yours, Lord. I'm still yours.